Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, this is Dr. Dusty Keim, a hospitalist at the Durham VA Hospital, here to talk about how to approach diabetic foot ulcer infection. Goals of this podcast are to know the key points of diabetic foot ulcer infection, epidemiology, pathophysiology, evaluation, diagnosis, and management. Let's start with a clinical vignette. A 64-year-old male with a history of poorly controlled diabetes, vascular insufficiency, and diabetic neuropathy presents to the ED with a complaint of new drainage from a left foot ulcer. The patient is unsure how long the ulcer has been present as he only became aware of it when he noticed that his left sock was wet and denies any prior history of diabetic foot ulcer infection. Otherwise, the patient has no other complaints. Vitals are within normal limits and exam is notable for a 1.5 centimeter ulcer on the left metatarsal with approximately 3 to 4 centimeters of surrounding erythema and warmth with a small amount of serous leakage. The wound does not tract and is non-tender, however, patient does note impaired sensation over the lower extremities at baseline. Labs are notable um, for a, a CBC with a white count of 11.8 and a normal CMP, as well as a recent hemoglobin A1C of 9.4. How do you proceed? The first thing to know about diabetic foot ulcer infection is that it's a big problem. Around 10% of Americans are diabetic, and their lifetime risk of developing a foot ulcer infection is about 1 in 20. Infected diabetic foot ulcers are the leading cause of diabetic-related hospitalizations and lead to approximately 60% of lower extremity amputations. Because diabetes is a systemic disease, the pathophysiology of diabetic foot ulcers has much in common with other diabetic complications. Underlying impairments of the vascular, nervous, and immune system lend to the development of ulcerations via mild trauma with subsequent infection. Mild superficial infections are typically monomicrobial and due to superficial organisms such as beta-hemolytic strep or staph aureus. Deeper or more chronic infections in patients who are not treatment-naive are more likely to be polymicrobial and be infected with gram-negatives. Also, if gangrene is present, anaerobes are also likely present. A point lost on some is that on presentation to the hospital, not all diabetic foot ulcers are infected, though granted, differentiating between infection and not infection can be quite difficult. On exam, look for any of the four classic signs of infection, calor, meaning warmth, rubor, meaning erythema, tumor, meaning swelling, or dolor, meaning pain. If applicable, one should also do a probe-to-bone test. This is particularly useful given its relatively high specificity for the diagnosis of osteomyelitis, which is a common complication and requires different management. Routine labs including CBC and metabolic panel should be collected. Inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP can be obtained to help evaluate a patient's response to therapy, i.e. not to help make a diagnosis. Per up-to-date, quote, some but not all studies have suggested that procalcitonin may be useful. However, further investigation is needed to determine the clinical utility of this assay, end quote. As for me, I would probably stay away from procalcitonin until its interpretation becomes a little more clear. Question, 
Should you get cultures? Not routinely. Anytime someone gets a superficial culture, there's going to be a lot of bacterial colonizers that may or may not mean anything clinically. As I say, garbage in, garbage out. What this means is that getting superficial cultures when they aren't needed may lead to a lot of frustration and overtreatment when the culture comes back with a resistant organism you didn't expect. So when and where should one get cultures? Per Mandel, quote, deep tissue cultures obtained through local debridement provide the most reliable bacteriologic information. If not available, cultures and material obtained from curatage of the base of the ulcer or from purulent exudate may provide information needed to guide antimicrobial therapy, end quote. I'm willing to bet that most infected diabetic foot ulcers you'll see won't have purulent drainage or be bad enough for surgical intervention. So in large, antimicrobial treatment is going to be empiric. Proper diagnosis is determined clinically and should be made if the patient has two of the following, erythema, warmth, tenderness, swelling, induration, or purulent secretions. The hard part about this is that many patients have underlying neuropathy, edema, etc. that will make evaluating changes from patient's baseline difficult. One other helpful hint is the associations with infected diabetic foot ulcers. These include the presence of more than one month history of said ulcer, history of peripheral arterial disease, a history of walking barefoot, renal insufficiency, or a history of recurrent foot ulcers. As for management, if it's not infected, don't give antibiotics. This is a pretty good rule of thumb in medicine and life in general. The IDSA recommends that once diagnosed, infected diabetic foot ulcers be managed depending on their degree of severity. Mild infections are those that lack systemic symptoms and in which infection spreads less than two centimeters beyond the ulcer margins. The patient usually doesn't need to be admitted and can be treated with a one to two week course of oral antibiotics such as clindamycin, cephalexin, dicloxacillin, augmentin, or levofloxacin. I typically try and stay away from levofloxacin unless there's a reason to cover pseudomonas given its association with C. diff. Moderate infections still lack systemic involvement but have associated inflammation beyond two centimeters from the ulcer. Lymphangitic streaking, or associated abscess, gangrene, osteomyelitis, or myositis. If infection is severe enough to warrant hospitalization with IV antibiotics, treatment choices include ceftriaxone, cefiroxime, cefoxetin, or ampicillin sulbactam. Severe infections are those with systemic components such as fever, hypotension, acidosis, or are limb-threatening. These usually require these usually require surgical intervention and should be treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics, including MRSA, gram-negative, and anaerobic coverage. Question, when should I cover MRSA? Not routinely, but would probably cover if patient has a good culture data to suggest MRSA infection, patient fails treatment without MRSA coverage, patient has a history of prior MRSA infection, patient is a known colonizer with MRSA, appearance is noted on exam, or if patient has a severe infection. Question, should I cover pseudomonas? Also, not routinely. In 2015, there was a randomized controlled trial comparing Zosin, which does have pseudomonal coverage, to ertapenem, which does not, and showed no real difference in outcomes. So I would say, unless you think patient has pseudomonas based on good culture data, 
the patient is critically ill, or the patient has a notable risk factor, such as a macerated wound or recent water exposure, antipseudomonal coverage is probably not needed. Question, should I get surgery involved? If the infection is associated with significant encrusting, if the ulcer is deep and extends to subcutaneous tissue, or necrosis is suspected, surgery should be involved for possible debridement for both therapeutic and diagnostic benefit, i.e. to determine the extent of infection. Wound care consultation to help with packing may also be helpful, especially if the wound is deep. Generally, open ulcers should be packed two to three times a day with wet to dry gauze with or without betadine. Associated comorbidities should be worked up and managed as indicated, namely if the patient has or is suspected to have peripheral arterial disease, vascular insufficiency, peripheral edema, etc. Diagnosis and management of these is key to prevent future presentations. And of course, diabetic control is of the utmost importance. Always be aware that other infectious complications, such as an associated abscess, which should be suspected if gas is noted on imaging, or there is expressible purulence or fluctuance on exam, or osteomyelitis, which can usually be diagnosed via a positive probe-to-bone test, as both of these diagnoses would require additional therapy. So back to the clinical vignette. Although the patient has a moderate infection, recall inflammation extending greater than 2 centimeters from the base of the ulcer, he probably doesn't require hospitalization. As patient does not require IV antibiotics, he could likely be treated with a 1-2 to two week course of oral antibiotics such as clindamycin, cephalexin, augmentin, or levofloxacin. The patient should have follow-up in about 7-10 to 10 days to ensure clinical improvement. If no improvement is noted at that time, antibiotics should be expanded to include MRSA coverage and or better gram-negative coverage. That is, assuming patient took initial course of medication. Emphasis should be placed on improving patient's diabetic control. Behavioral modifications should be made to reduce risk of ultra progression, such as appropriate footwear, regular self-exams, and wound care as needed. As a disclaimer, the views and opinions stated during this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA Hospital. It has been a pleasure, and I hope you found this helpful. Until next time, take care.